Before we start, a warning. This episode includes explicit descriptions of torture, which some listeners might find upsetting and is definitely not suitable for children. I'm Jade Calloway. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for nearly 10 years now. I was born just two months before Iraq's president, Saddam Hussein, invaded Kuwait in August 1990. In this series, I'm learning all about the 1991 Gulf War by hearing from those who fought in it. Eight hours, 23 million pounds worth of explosive is getting dropped on the forward two lines of Iraqi defensive positions. I'm sitting there thinking the poor lad is probably as scared as anybody around here. We were all questioning how we would look after people that were effectively from the other side, you know, the enemy, and we had a lot of those casualties through. The usual fire control orders that happen in a tank of fin tank on, that kind of thing, went out the window as I found a target in depth on the enemy position. When they found out that uh, I was on the run, they were like, there's no way he's going to survive this. This is Granby, the storm in the desert. That's RAF pilot John Peters. He and navigator John Nicholl were found by Saddam Hussein's troops in the Iraqi desert after they'd ejected from their burning tornado. No one heard their ejection message. They were shot at, beaten up, handcuffed, blindfolded and taken to a local airfield to be questioned. Then on to Baghdad for further interrogation. The two captives were paraded on Iraqi TV, battered and bruised. They arrived in Baghdad during a coalition bomb attack. Well, as we approached, they saw that things started getting nasty. They started smashing face against the side of the lorry, hitting around the head with pistol butts. Uh, you get into the city, everyone's manically firing Kalashnikovs into the sky. You've got the bombs going off, the anti-aircraft guns. Pushed us through, van came to a halt, pushed us through a what felt like a corridor of troops, because we're still blindfolded handcuffed, who, kicking, rifle, butting and thumping you, pushed us into a room, an ops building. Within two seconds of getting in there, you suddenly heard a... A bomb hit the room, the whole of the ceiling came down, the two walls got blown up, and we got picked up two metres, thrown three or four metres, and end up under a pile of desks, rubble and chairs. When the dust settled, kicked me in the side room. I tried to see if I could kick my way out. I was blindfolded, but trying to see if I could undo stuff. And then, I don't know. The door opened, a number of men come in, and my world goes black. Uh, next thing, I'm in the interrogation room. You're standing there. You can smell and sense six, seven, eight men in there. You can smell the smoke, the sweat, uh, feel the lights on you, uh, and the sense of what's going to happen. And they ask your name, Peter's rank, flight attendant, so standard interrogation technique. And you're only meant to give name, rank, number, date of birth, and answer no other question. Back then it was, you die, rather than ask any, answer any other question than those four. And they said, are you pilot or navigator? I went to say, I cannot 
which is the I cannot answer that question, sir. And your head explodes. They hit you around the head with a baseball bat, and then probably for the first 40, 50 minutes, they. You can't even form the F word in your head. Your, your body's like a rag doll. You're just, uh, just lolling around as they, five, six, seven men, just smack your body with baseball bats. I've got two crushed vertebrae from the ejection, so I've got a broken back. And they, uh, they just spend their life beating you with baseball bats, rubber truncheons, set your hair on fire, they burn you with cigarettes, threaten me with gang rape, threaten to cut my dick off. Threatening to have knives up my ass, guns up my ass. You hear people being tortured. Uh, you don't have any water, uh, so two to three days in, you are really in a bad way. Your skin's flaking without being beaten. Your lips are splitting. And it just goes on for days. Eventually, they were put in front of the TV cameras. But John had a plan. What you see on television, actually, is acting. You don't eyeball them, because, again, they beat you more. So I thought... Um, I'll just convey that I am here under duress. So I very much put my eye out. I very much play like this. Uh, I talk really slowly and quietly. They put the mic on books. I, they still couldn't hear me. And eventually this uh, major, okay, great big tash and unshaven came up, pulled me up, put a gun right in my eyeball and he said, I will literally cut your balls off if you don't do this. And he wasn't joking. So I thought, OK. So I just said, I'm flight attendant Peters, we bombed an airfield. But my real pride is they had a whole script. And I just played punch drunk. And they, uh, I got away with that. So I never said the script. The pictures of the two captives caused outrage back in the UK. Their faces were on the front pages of all the national newspapers. Fellow tornado navigator Martin Wintermeyer was watching. Although they looked like they'd been beaten, it was, well, actually, they're still alive, so that's good. After that, the Iraqis didn't, because they got such bad world um, press from that, the, the way they treated them, and they didn't put anyone else on TV again. Others hadn't been so fortunate. Martin and fellow navigator Mal Craghill remember the tornado crews that never returned. Just before the war started, I think 13th of January, we lost uh, Kieran and Norman, who were from my squadron. And that was particularly hard because um, I was night flying that night and I went in to start the planning process uh, just as the other guys were being put into the crew room and hushed, and everything's quite hushed. And it turned out that um, Norman Kieran had been uh, killed in an aircraft crash that day. Uh, so, of course, my immediate thought was, oh, my God, that's that's awful. Well, we'll, we'll start the grieving process now. But, of course, we couldn't because I had to go flying that night. Very, very sad. But, of course, then I, I think it was quite brutal at the time. But the boss said, no, you've got to forget them, get on with it. We've got a war to fight in four days. We woke one morning and, you know, as you do, you'd, you'd get up and have breakfast and see who else was about and what's going on. And there's there's the guys from, from Gary and Kev's foreship saying, well, we, they didn't come back last night. Oh, right. Um, and you don't know at that stage what's happened to them, whether they've been, you know, taken prisoner <clears throat> or, or whether they've been killed or whatever. But for us, you know, we're flying that night. Was it, oh, right, OK, OK. Um, Really sorry to hear that. We've sorry got to go to work. You just don't have time to process it at the time, and it's and it's probably just as well because if you if you dwell on it, you'd you'd start worrying about your own mortality. Throughout the campaign, eight RAF tornadoes were lost, five on operations, and three during the workup. This conflict was the first in the new era of twenty-four hour rolling news. It was a game changer when it came to war reporting. 
The Gulf War was very much the first televised war, or certainly the first televised war as far as Britain was concerned, where they had same-day material coming in from all the networks. So we did mingle with some of the journalists at the time. Brian Barron from BBC was there, and there were a number of other fairly well-known people who rolled into town. There was a sort of a um, thing that we knew we were in trouble when Kate Ady arrived. That's when we knew we were definitely, something was going to happen when she arrived, because she didn't just go to sort of anywhere. She only went to serious places as well. That was our impression anyway. One famous moment with Doran when CNN, I think it's Charles Jaco said, I've just seen a fortune of tornadoes getting airborne and heading west. I'm not quite sure where they're going. So he was taken in to see the base commander and giving a good talking to. <laughs> in a tank, your battlefield is as far as you can see. And we got a much better feel for what was happening in the bigger picture by listening to the World Service and the briefings provided by the military to the media in Riyadh about what was going on. Down at the very ground floor, you're almost like mushrooms. You're kept in the dark and fed on SH1T. <laughs> we didn't have cameras coming round the walls, but we did have cameras in various areas of the camp filming some things. And actually, God love them. I know they've got a job to do, but it was like having an irritating fly. It was like, I know you're there, but actually I could really do without you being there because we need to get on. And explaining to you what I'm doing is making it more real and live than I would really like it to be. So... I think it would be fair to say that there was a bit of a conflict going on. We know it needed reporting, but actually it felt at the time, because we were in the thick of things, a bit of an inconvenience. I basically told my family not to watch the news because a lot of it was being sensationalised and some of it was giving them the wrong idea. So, you know, thinking that we were in danger all the time, of course we were in danger, but at the same time, the news was really making it more dangerous than it actually needed to be, if that makes sense. The only person that I knew and saw having contact with the outside world was Robert Fox, our war correspondent from the Daily Telegraph. And he had this big around the world in 80 days suitcase with a big antenna on the top where we used to see him setting it up away from battle group headquarters to send whatever reports that he was allowed to send back to the Daily Telegraph. We were tasked to pick up a certain Kate Aidy from Kuwait, and she didn't turn up. So you probably know Kate Aidy. We thought, well, let's get out of here before she arrives. Over the past few days and the past few weeks with the Allied bombings, there has been the most tremendous um, attack on positions by the aircraft and by the guns, particularly this week. And it's got more and more intense as the days have gone by. This is as nothing compared to what may come. The firepower here and the intentions and the determination of the Allies is very great indeed. BBC correspondent Kate Aidy there reporting on the intensity of the air offensive. Senior air craftsman Mark Humphreys was under pressure to keep everything going when he was called to fix a power set on a very busy runway. I had to put my hand on the reset button and keep my hand on the reset button while the jets were taking off. So basically I was there, sat on top of this power set with my hand on the reset button while these two tornadoes were powering up, ready to go to take off. And the, I just remember sat on top of that power set with my finger on the reset button, looking at the wave after wave after wave of aircraft taking off, whether it be the Americans or the Saudis or the Brits. For 15 minutes, that runway was rolling, you know, just solid three or four aircraft at a time 15 minutes of these planes taking off and I just thought to myself I would not like to be on the end of that 
More than a thousand sorties were carried out during the first 24 hours of Operation Desert Storm, the American name of the operation. Lieutenant Colonel Danny Wilde was a troop sergeant in D Squadron of the 14th 20th King's Hussars, which was part of the 4th Armoured Brigade. The air war only did a certain amount of damage. Yes, it certainly helped us when we finally um, got into Saudi Arabia and then came back into Kuwait. But uh, I knew at that point personally that aircraft don't take ground and they don't move people on and they don't move an enemy on. At some point when that was finished, we would be expected to play our part in removing the people of the Iraqi armed forces that were on the ground along the Saudi Arabian border, which they'd massed on, and also in Kuwait. After six weeks of aerial bombardment, it was time for the ground troops to get ready. T minus one, and tomorrow's G-Day. And this evening, the big barrage begins along the border. Eight hours. 23 million pounds worth of explosive is getting dropped on the forward two lines of Iraqi defensive positions. Um, and I'm now sitting in the turret, charging my Uzi magazines with 30 rounds. And we're going in on late on G plus one, I believe. Lieutenant Colonel Tim Purbrick was a tank troop leader. This is the personal war diary he recorded on cassette. <coughs> so, what is this? The night before the war. Colonel came round and shook everyone's hand. Padre came round and had we had communion. And he blessed the tanks, which is quite nice of him. He said, bless them on the road to Baghdad. Okay, and today is G-1, which is the 23rd, Saturday the 23rd of February 1991. Danny Wilde remembers another sobering preparation, putting pen to paper to write last letters, which they hoped would never be posted. We were all in the 1420th battle group given these blueys, the last bluey, you know, and if anything happened to us, and then we had to write our blueys out and, and give them to the troop leader, and um, the adjutant came round and he collected everybody's bluey which I can only assume that, and thank God it didn't, if anything would have happened to any of us, this last bluey would have been presented to your family and your loved ones back in UK, so said probably um, all the things that they'd wanted to say for a long time, and when the reality hits you that this might be the last time you have the opportunity to say something, then make good with the pen. On the 24th of February 1991, the ground offensive began. Allied paratroopers land in Kuwait City. In nine hours, Allies push 25 miles inside Kuwait in a massive land attack. Salam urges his troops to fight, 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 but thousands surrender. Good morning, you're watching Sky News, 24 hours continuous coverage of the Gulf War. It's 10 o'clock, I'm Penny Smith. Good morning, I'm Stephen Cole. Day 39 of the Gulf War and day one of the long-awaited land battle. Let's go straight away. Uh, 20 past seven on G-Day. We've moved early from the regimental staging area up uh, on the way to the staging area three itself. 
We moved a lot earlier than we thought. Nearly. At 15:15 uh, 15, 15 hours, the commanding officer came up on the battle net, sounded his hunting horn, and we were off. And within several kilometres, we had passed through the front line of the uh, the US troops, and we were out in enemy territory. Lieutenant Colonel Tim Purbrick remembers it well. Almost immediately, we came across a camel herder who was driving his camels across our front. Now, D Squadron of the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars Battle Group was the lead squadron. We were the point of the spear. And we stopped. We stopped to allow the camel herder to push his camels across our front so we didn't mess his life up. <laughs> and then we carried on. I recall seeing in the far distance through my tank optics a, an Apache helicopter wheeling over a position and we thought well there must be something up there. That was the first time that we came across an enemy armoured vehicle and there was a bit of do we open up shall we, do we have permission to do this and it was like we're at war guys just get on with it. There was nothing in front of us but bad guys and so it was pretty obvious that we had to take out whatever it was that was in front of us. Major General Patrick Cordingly was the commander of 7th Armoured Brigade. The orders were to destroy the Republican Guard, who were the sort of second line of defence after the Iraqi front line, which was full of conscripts and the regular army. Actually, probably fairly useless soldiers. But the Republican Guard had good equipment. They had to be destroyed if Saddam Hussein was to lose his power base. And destruction meant exactly that, destroy everything you saw. And so that's what it was. And our part in that was to look after the right flank of the US 7th Corps as it went north and then turned to, the, turned to the east to destroy the Republican Guard. This was US General Stormin Norman Schwarzkopf's left hook manoeuvre. It was top secret. At least, it was meant to be. It very nearly wasn't. Somebody who was meant to be in charge of the laptop, which had been used for the presentation, a top secret presentation to Prime Minister and myself and the Chief of Defence Staff, which was the Norman Schwarzkopf secret left hook plan which he was going to uh, operate. And uh, this had been on this laptop, an ADC or, or staff officer, uh, very unfortunately left it in the car while he went to look at a possible um, van that he was thinking of buying. And he was pinched. Then Defence Secretary Lord King says there were fears the laptop had been stolen by the Iraqis. Actually, just an ordinary thief who uh, uh, returned it because the story had got out. Um, and uh, he then, the laptop turned up and he told us where it would be with the message, I may be a thief, but I'm a patriot too, which was an amazing, extraordinary story. We were very lucky. 221 British challengers took part in the ground offensive. Tank commander David Garrigan remembers the left hook took some clever setting up. One of the most vivid memories I have of before we'd actually gone into Iraq was we did a move pretty much the entire night where the tanks were put onto transporters and transported, I don't know how far, but a long way with the crews sat inside the tanks. I'd never done that before, that was fairly extraordinary. And the idea behind it, which we found out afterwards, was that we were going to attack into Iraq, but we'd given every impression that we were going to attack into Kuwait, which is where Saddam Hussein had decided we were going to come in. And apparently, and I don't know if this is true, but apparently PSYOPs had done a lot of stuff where they'd recorded a load of tanks, because obviously tanks are quite loud. 345, we've crossed New Jersey. We're head out, we're in a 
so they'd recorded a load of tanks, put some speakers near the border with Q8 and kept that noise going. And the move on the transporters was to ensure that there was little noise so they didn't know we were moving round to what was their, their right flank. So it was a very clever bit of movement considering it was moving so many thousands of vehicles because it wasn't just the tanks, it was everything else. At the time, I didn't necessarily think about it, but afterwards... I did think it was an incredibly clever thing to do to put such a deceptive plan into place. But it obviously worked because it didn't reinforce on that right flank and that's where we went in. Right, seven o'clock. Now on G plus one. And we're sitting on the line rows. We kept scanning around the battlefield for more targets and everyone was taking out the tanks that they could see. The usual fire control orders that happen in a tank of fin tank on on, loaded, fire, lazing, firing now, went out the window as I found a target in depth on the enemy position. We couldn't rightfully see what it was. I thought it might be a tank or a fuel bowser or a target of that description. And I said to the gunner, what do you think that is? And we had a discussion about it for a few minutes and he said, well, shall I take it out? And I said, yeah, give it a go. I had a look at the commander's range readout next to me and it said 4,700 meters. That's two and a half miles from where we are. And now we're looking at sort of four times the battle range of a Challenger 1. And it turned out to be the most massive explosion. And that wasn't the only long range hit. A shot fired by a tank of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards actually made the record books by destroying an Iraqi tank three miles away. A distance record that remains unbeaten 30 years later. At the time, the Iraqi army was the fifth largest in the world. But David Garrigan says they were prepared. The sheer scale of what we had at our fingertips was not underestimated, I don't think, by anybody. From the lowest person right up to the top, we knew that we had as much firepower as had been put into the battlefield for a long, long time. Everywhere you looked, everywhere you could see, were vehicles and troops and the vastness of it I don't think was lost on us. But we didn't underestimate the Iraqis, not by any stretch. They'd been to war for a long time against their neighbours and they were an experienced army so we in no way underestimated them. We were totally respectful of who we were up against and the experience that was in front of us. What we didn't have to worry about was one of the key aspects which was the air side of it that gave us confidence but it certainly didn't make us overconfident, no. I did reflect afterwards that if you'd been sitting in the back of a warrior wondering what you were going to do, you couldn't see anything and you knew the next thing that happened, you get onto an enemy position, you have to get out and you were sitting there, that has to have been frightening. But I was in the luxurious position of constant communications going on, problems you had to deal with. Commanders are much too busy, but I never forget, I was always worried about what people in the back of warriors or soldiers in tanks were thinking. Major Ronnie Harley was watching the skies from the desert. If you looked up in the night sky, you saw twinkling lights of aircraft going towards the Iraqi positions. And then you could set your watch by the ground moving around you as you lay there um, when the munitions were detonating on these poor Iraqis. And, and the final thing uh, was just the, um, uh, the ferocity of modern firepower. So at one point, my unit was in the lead for the advance medical unit with <laughs> no weapons. Somebody read the map wrong. Well, it's true or not, I don't know, but that's what we were told. So we were paused in the middle of nowhere at night and then we had this whoosh and I looked out to, I think it was to my right and there was a multiple launch rocket system setting off 
pitch rockets, and we followed the streaks up, and somewhere in the distance was a, was a position, uh, one of the objectives, and it must have been full of armour. And I just remember seeing this tank turret shoot towards the sky, I mean, hundreds of feet, and we were miles behind it, but I could see this tank turret illuminated on a T-55 or a T-62 flying out there, so we thought, crikey. David Garrigan was also in awe of the artillery firepower. During the actual ground war, we got very little sleep. I was a lot younger and a lot fitter and adrenaline and everything kept you going. But in one of the bits, I'd managed to get into my sleeping bag to try and get some sleep at three in the morning or whatever. And not long after I'd got into my sleeping bag, an artillery barrage started. And it was quite close to us. And I'd never heard this scale of noise before. Now tanks, when they fire, make an incredible noise. As a general rule, you're inside and it still makes a lot of noise, but there's a lot of other noise going on to sort of deaden some of it and you've got headsets on and all that sort of stuff. But I heard this artillery barrage going out, but I didn't know it was an outgoing one. You know, I've never experienced either an outgoing and ingoing before that, so it was an incredible noise. And the only way I can describe it is it felt to me like the earth was just about to start to grind to a halt on its axis. The noise was that loud. And having been in quite a deep sleep, because I hadn't had much sleep, being woken up like that was quite scary. But also when I found out it was outgoing, quite awe-inspiring. But also then we attacked the next day, as far as I recall, the position that had been hit by that artillery barrage. And it was... It was pretty brutal, so probably that was one of the scariest things because of the pure ferocity of the noise. It was it was something else. Treating the injured at 3-3 Field Hospital was Army Nurse Lance Corporal Karen Sanders Crook. What struck me was the age range. There were a lot of young boys that were out there carrying weapons and the fact that when they came in and we were nursing actually they were just patients the same as any other patient you know there was no judgment it wasn't a case of all you know all this person's from Iraq all this person's from wherever it was just these are patients and they need our care so we need to do the best for them that we can and I think that was the general consensus I didn't detect any negativity from anybody I truly felt that everybody was treated in a non-judgmental way and with the best love and care with the equipment that we got available at the time which for me as a nurse you know when you go into a vocation like that that's one of the the fundamental aspects is that you're you know you can only do this job if you're non-judgmental and I think that came across from everybody. Providing that care was challenging given the environment. We were intense for a start, so the conditions of being in the desert were a huge impact. When you're trying to maintain infection control procedures in an environment like that, it's really, really challenging. So we were there to provide emergency medical support. We had operating theatres there and everything. So it was a fully functioning hospital. In just 66 hours from the start of the ground war, British forces had advanced 180 miles destroying the equivalent of three Iraqi armoured divisions and capturing more than 7,000 prisoners. It takes a lot of time to disarm them. We were supposed to be taking 50 of them. They were walking towards us and we actually 
had to leave without them because we just were running out of time. It is very time consuming. Maybe it's one of the ways of slowing an army down, is it just give them lots and lots of prisoners of war to handle. Oh yeah, lots of. I remember we'd attacked a position and the Iraqis wanted to give up, which I don't blame them for. And I vividly remember looking through my sights. Now, bearing in mind, these Iraqis are now looking at 14 tanks sat there with all of their main armaments pointed towards them. And one of them was on his camel because he wanted to get across to us as quickly as he could. He had a stick that he was hitting his camel with. But I think he was worried that we thought that stick might be a weapon. And he was worried about getting shot. So he would hit the camel, but within a nanosecond, put the stick into the air so that it didn't look like he had any sort of weapon on him. So I remember sitting there thinking, the poor lad is probably as scared as anybody around here and wants to make sure that nobody misinterprets any of his intentions, that he wants to make sure that we see straight away that it's not a gun. Because, I mean, if it had, he wouldn't have lasted very long. But we treated all of the prisoners with full respect and we didn't really deal with them that much because we had other people that would come up and take them rearwards it wasn't really something we could deal with particularly because there's nothing you can do with them on a tank if we could give them some water or whatever we did but yeah thousands of prisoners we saw thousands of prisoners Suddenly, one person emerged out of the desert, out of nowhere, in front of us. When we decided that he wasn't a threat, he went back to his trench and he pulled out another few guys and they all sat cross-legged next to our tank, tears pouring down their face, and there was nothing really we could do with them apart from point them back down the centre line because in a tank there's nowhere to put any prisoners and we weren't in a position to deal with them, so we pointed them and they walked back in the direction we told them to. Prisoners of war were taken on both sides, some before the ground war had even begun. I'm Chris Ryan. I'm the guy that walked out to Syria during the first Gulf War. I can remember getting onto the helicopter, QM was next to me, and I said, this is a one-way ticket. We had very little information on terrain, the area, the weather, borders, anything. In fact, my map dated back to 1944. The smock I was wearing was from Second World War issue. It wasn't a case of if it's going to go wrong, it is when it goes wrong, we're going to be on the run and it will be a complete disaster. But I'm an SAS soldier. I'd taken the shullen, so it was time to go to work. This was the ill-fated Bravo 2-0 mission, when British Special Forces went behind enemy lines. The Iraqis kept sending scuds across into various other countries and they were worried that Israel would get drawn in. So to broker that deal, they decided to send in three patrols to put observation posts onto the ground on main supply routes. The idea would be that through satellite comms, we would call in fast air, destroy the scuds. We decided to go in by foot. The other two patrols were evac'd out of the area because it was too flat and we tried to put in an observation post but we were compromised the second day. They'd been discovered by a goat herder who informed the local militia. There was a firefight. Four members of the patrol were captured and of the remaining four, Chris would be the only survivor. The problems weren't evading from the enemy, it was actually the weather. When you consider we have two guys who died of hypothermia, they froze to death. I was with one guy as he was dying, Vince, and you know, I tried everything to convince him to keep moving. And um, 
yeah, it was just a disaster. The, the main enemy was the weather. And wherever you are in the world, it doesn't matter you know, what you're doing. If you come foul of that, it'll catch you and kill you. And that was the big problem. The fact that I walked, you know, the 320 kilometers, you know, I don't think of that. It's the 12 hours where I had to lie on bedrock every single day and try and survive and try not to die. After eight nights on the run in freezing temperatures and snow, without food or water, Chris approached the Syrian border. He had no idea if he would face friend or foe. The area I was walking through was the Ambar region and they were fiercely loyal to the Saddam regime. Now, every day I was focused in crossing that border and that was my goal. Even when I was actually, you know, lying on the desert floor, crying because I couldn't go on, it was that border. I knew I'd be safe when I crossed that border. Naively, the people in that region don't recognize the borders. They've lived there for thousands of years, the tribes. So I wasn't going to find any friendlies. And certainly in that town, they looked at me with hatred. I was facing a lynch mob. There was two cars and some motorbikes and a group of guys at the rear of the Mercedes. So they blindfolded me, dragged me up, and the guy stuck the pistol to the back of my head, and I was just waiting for the round to go off. I was bundled back into the Mercedes, taken off. Several hours later, as we were driving down this desert road, there was a massive sign, and they knew what was on this sign because they allowed me to see it, and it said, Baghdad. And this guy started pushing his thumb into my ribs, and uh, they all turned around and said, yeah, we're Iraqis, we fooled you, you're going to prison. At that point, what I started to do is work it out what was going to happen. The car will approach a military compound, the door will be opened, I'll be dragged out, I'll be beaten, I'll be kicked, I'll be dragged down into a cell, there'll be some more beatings. And I kept telling myself this so it wasn't a fright and I could prep myself so, you know, I'm not spilling my guts. We ended up on the outskirts of a town at 11 o'clock at night. The car stopped, another guy got out of a car that was waiting and all the kit that they'd taken off me in the car, like my ID discs, my knife and various things, he handed them back and he said, it won't be long now. So we drove into this compound and uh, when it came to get out, my legs and my ankles had swollen up that much. They had to carry me up into a lift. And as the lift ascended and the doors opened, there was a guy there in a suit, stripy tie, and he said, welcome to Damascus, come in. He was the head of their secret police and he couldn't have done more for me. Chris's 200 mile walk to Syria was the longest escape and evasion in the history of the SAS. In hindsight, talking to the lads that were in the two squadrons, A and D squadron, when they found out I was on the run, they were like, there's no way he's going to survive this. The diesel was becoming jellified in their vehicles. They had to put little burners in there to keep the temperature going. Guys were in jackets like this, double sleeping bags, and they knew that I didn't have anything. I mean, hey, I had cold injuries. I'd lost 38 pound in weight, no toenails. There was pus coming out of all the areas where it blistered. I had bed sores, damaged liver psychological problems <laughs> yes yeah in fact what happened was when i got back i was in such a state i could only walk 
maybe 100 metres before I was out of breath and I had to go and see the CEO. He said, listen, Geordie, we're going to get you kitted out and get you back across there. And I was going, OK, boss, OK, thinking, not a chance. Next time on Granby, the storm in the desert. When they'd set fire to all the oil wells, that was pretty horrible. That was a pretty, pretty disgusting experience. I'll never forget it. There were mistakes. We're still suffering from the mistakes, but um, we were there to um, do our duty. You can try and explain to family and to people living in civilian life what it was like, but they will never ever be able to grasp the atmosphere and the fact that you were basically living on a knife edge because you didn't know whether you were going to come back. Those who were there had come through it unscathed and they now wish to go home to their families and their friends and their domestic life. And those are moments that live in your mind forever. This is a BFBS podcast produced by me, Jade Calloway, and Jess Bracey with interviews from our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden and our editor is Josella Waldron. Waldron.